Good morning, everyone. Our first case this morning is Bartley versus City of High Point and Matt Blackman. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning. Uh, may it please the court, my name is David Woodard. I, along with my colleague Brett Carpenter, are pleased to be here to represent Officer Matt Blackman, police officer with the City of High Point. Um, we are here today with this case because Officer Blackman has been sued in his individual capacity while performing his official police duties in what would have been an ordinary routine traffic stop, but for the plaintiff's uh, disobedience and not complying with two safety directives to return to his car and the subsequent detention uh, and charging him with resisting and delaying or obstructing a police officer, which, as will become important in this case, resulted in the plaintiff's own testimony, no actual injury or harm to him aside from some momentary discomfort of wearing a pair of handcuffs and a fleeting red mark on his wrist uh, from the handcuffs. The issues before the court today, Your Honors, uh, involves a fact-intensive review but a fairly straightforward application of public official immunity, which, as the court is aware, is intended to and applies uh, to protect public officials like Officer Blackman from civil liability, uh, individual damages in civil cases for performance of their duties and the actions and the decisions that they make in the ordinary course of their governmental duties. And as this court has recognized, there is a presumption that those officials do act lawfully, and it is incumbent upon the plaintiff to produce substantial and competent proof to rebut that presumption uh, that the official acted with malice outside the course and scope of his duties or with corruption. Uh, and the only factor that's at issue in this case uh, is whether or not Officer Blackman acted with sufficient malice. In our case, there was no malice, but the argument is sufficient malice to overcome his official immunity. And this court has ruled before on several occasions that this is not an ordinary summary judgment evidentiary standard. Uh, we have been able to take Mr. Bartley's the plaintiff's deposition and develop a good factual record. The court has held that they must, the court must look at that factual record in its entirety and the plaintiff must carry a quote heavy burden that this court has defined to produce substantial and competent evidence of in this case malicious behavior by Officer Blackman. And what we are asking the court to do in this case, your honors, is simply apply that high standard to the facts of this case. And those facts are these. On August the 23rd of 2017, Officer Blackman was following the plaintiff in his patrol car, an unmarked patrol car. The plaintiff crossed the double yellow line and passed a vehicle unlawfully. Uh, the photograph that is attached to the brief uh, demonstrates in the, from the plaintiff's camera where he did the passing. He's approaching the top of a hill, which, as you can tell from the photograph, would impede uh, his view of oncoming traffic. Officer Blackman waited until they crossed that hill and it was safe to get around the truck that was passed, turned on his air horn, his siren, and his lights, which resulted in the truck pulling over. He followed Mr. Bartley, the plaintiff, to his home through several turns in a neighborhood. Mr. Bartley didn't stop as a result of the uh, lights, uh, but Mr. Officer Blackman did not make an issue of that. He followed him to his driveway. Uh, in Officer Blackman's mind is knowledge that People who are being pursued by the police will frequently pull in the driveways in an attempt to elude the police. So that was a factor that was on his mind when this stop was going down. He pulled in, Mr. Bartley, the plaintiff, pulled into the driveway up to the top. Officer Blackman pulled to the bottom of the driveway with his car, the grill of his car, facing Mr. Bartley, the plaintiff. And at, at that time, I'm sorry, at that time was the, uh, were the blue lights and sirens still functioning? Your Honor, the siren was functioning as he pulled to the driveway. When he stopped his car, he turned off the siren but left the blue lights flashing so on the, the front of his car. So the evidence is that the blue lights were flashing throughout the entire interaction? That is correct, Your Honor. He turned off the siren so that they could communicate but kept the lights on. So, so the siren was operating until it got to the tool of the driveway to arrived at the driveway? Okay, thank you. And, Your, and Your Honor, there, there is, to, to be completely forthright, uh, the, the plaintiff, Mr. Bartley, claims that he did not see the blue, blue lights, but he doesn't deny that they were on. Okay. He's unable to deny that they were on. Um, so proceeding forward, the plaintiff gets out of his car. He starts to walk to the rear of his car. His stated intention is to get something out of the back of his car. 
Officer Blackman exits his car and tells him at least twice that the plaintiff acknowledges to stop and return to his car, which is just an ordinary thing to do in a traffic stop. Was the officer in plain clothes? He was plain clothes, Your Honor. Did not, did not identify himself? He did not say that I'm a police officer. Your Honor, uh, Your Honors, uh, at that point, Officer Blackman gave him the two directives to return to his car. The plaintiff's response to that, his own testimony, is that I'm not getting back into my car because I'm on private property, um, which was somewhat alarming to the officer. So the officer is getting out of his car and walking towards the plaintiff at this time. And the plaintiff agrees with this. The plaintiff says that I saw the officer as he was walking halfway to me, which is, you can tell from the photographs, this is closer to uh, Mr. Bartley than I am to all of you. It is not disputed, and the plaintiff admits that officer, to your point, Justice Morgan, uh, this officer was wearing a badge on his belt that was visible from the front. And Mr. Bartley saw that. He admits that he eventually saw that. This officer was wearing a police-issued sidearm that was visible to Mr. Bartley, and Mr. Bartley admits that he eventually saw that. This officer was carrying a police radio calling in for backup because of the way this situation was escalating. Now, Mr. Bartley says that I don't know whether he was doing that or not, but the testimony is not disputed that he was carrying this police radio. And he had other paraphernalia of law enforcement on his belt, along with his, like his handcuffs and things like that. And Mr. Bartley's own testimony is that he saw him coming halfway up the driveway, presented in that way. Uh, Mr. Bartley it, continued sorry, to... If I can just ask, does it matter when he saw the badge and isn't... Don't we have to go by his testimony that he didn't see it until after he'd been handcuffed? Your Honor, that is not his testimony, respectfully. His, his testimony is that, because I asked him about that, he said he initially was standing behind his car door and I said, did you eventually see the officer? And he said, of course I did. He had to come towards me. Some words of those effect. And he said that I saw him, I looked right at him when he was walking towards me up the driveway. So that is well in advance of the handcuffing. He did say that he saw the badge after he was handcuffed. But he saw, he, he was able to see the badge. He, he said that's, that's when I saw the badge. But he was able to see the badge as the officer approached him before the handcuffing. So you're saying that what matters is what he should have seen, not what he actually did see? My point is, Your Honor, that he could not have avoided seeing the badge. Uh, and what, we were, what this is getting to is the probable cause argument and what's in Officer, Bartley, Officer Blackman's mind. And he has approached an individual who he has stopped uh, lawfully for a traffic stop, for a traffic violation. It is wearing all of the indicia that he has of police authority and a police presence. There were flashing blue lights on his car, police radio, the gun, the badge the directions that are given, and this individual who continues to try to access the rear of his car. And the court, from his prior rulings, uh, I'm sure realizes that you have to see and know what Officer Blackman knows. He it, can't know what is in the mind of for, 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 and, and I guess that's another question I was going to ask him. Maybe this is the appropriate time to do it. Is the relevant question for purposes of penetrating per, uh, public official immunity uh, what the plaintiff actually observed or is the question what the officer reasonably believed that the plaintiff observed your honor if if probable cause whether it exists or not is going to be used as something to pierce which they are trying to use to pierce the immunity veil it is definitely it is clear in the law there is no law that puts the plaintiff's knowledge uh, in control of that decision it is what the officer knows that's how probable cause has always been and always is determined the officer sees, it can only see and know what is within his hearing, his vision. He can't know what is in the defendant's mind. When you're saying probable cause, what probable cause of what? Well, they have argued, Your Honor, what I'm referring to is their argument that they did not have probable cause. The officer did not have probable cause to charge him with resisting, delaying, and obstructing an officer. So that, that is what the core probable cause uh, argument is about in this case. Well, it, for purposes of whether this case moves forward, don't we take the testimony of the plaintiff in the light most favorable to him? That is the summary judgment standard, Your Honor, but, the but that does not mean that you have to take or that you should take. You definitely should not take the plaintiff's view of what his subjective feelings were about what the officer knew. Right? Well, looking at the testimony, in, in, you know, under oath in his deposition, yes. in response to the question, 
okay, how did you realize he was an officer? His answer was, after he had handcuffed me and I, and I seen the badge on his belt. Don't we have to take that in the light most favorable to him? Your Honor, um, two answers to that, if I may. Uh, that is really a defense of the charge type argument. If he got into court and was tried on this charge, that would be his fact defense, that I didn't know that I was violating the law. The officer in determining probable cause, before we ever get to that and before that testimony is even relevant, Your Honor, is does the officer have reason to believe that the defendant knows that he's a police officer? And that is viewed from the police officer's eyes. I mean, that, that's just the way probable cause is always determined. So, yes, you view evidence in a lot most favorable to the non-moving party in these cases, but you can't flip the determination of probable cause. And the issue here is whether or not Officer Blackman had probable cause simply to charge the defense. That's the issue. Not whether he's guilty of the defense, but whether Officer Blackman had probable cause to charge it. And only Officer Blackman's knowledge is relevant to that. Now, if there was a fact dispute over the facts that led up to this, then it might be a different case. I, I can't imagine what would make it different right now, but we don't have a dispute of facts in this case. It is Officer Blackman had knowledge that he was an officer, that this person should have reasonably seen the badge, the gun, the radio, the lights, heard the siren and the horn as the stop was proceeding. And that's all Officer Blackman needs for probable cause to charge this offense. But for the probable cause assessment, isn't it what a reasonable officer, not what he, what this particular officer subjectively believed? Isn't it what a reasonable officer would believe based on the circumstances? That is the test, Your Honor. But I would say they're one and the same in this case because it, it is reasonable for any officer under those circumstances that I just described to believe that probable cause existed to charge the RDO defense in this case. Help me a little bit understand this structure of the public official immunity issue as it exists in this case. The briefs talk about both the probable cause issue that we've been discussing here for a second, and I assume you will get to the second of these two things in a minute, which is the lack of a better word, excessive force contention. Am I correct or not in understanding that, assuming for purposes of discussion, there was a genuine issue of material fact as to either probable cause or excessive force, that there would be at least a jury question as to whether your client was entitled to public official immunity? Is that right? If analytically, I mean, I'm not asking you to agree on the facts. We can get to the facts in a second, but I just want to make sure analytically if I'm looking at it correctly. Your Honor, under the applicable test, if the plaintiff produces substantial, carries a heavy burden of producing substantial and competent evidence of malice, which is what they have argued. But either of those two things could be malice in theory. Actually, Your Honor, I would disagree with the probable cause. If he produces evidence of malice, that enough to create a jury issue, he could go to the jury. As you know, we dispute that strongly in this case. I am not aware of any case from the court of appeals or this court that uses lack of probable cause as a proxy for malice. And the three things that he has to prove are malice, corruption, or outside the course and scope of his duties. And they have chosen to pursue malice. And I just do not believe you can get there with a lack of probable cause. Well, you do believe you can't get there for lack of probable cause because lack of probable cause is not, even if it was established, is not malice. Or you can't get there for probable cause because you believe all the evidence shows that there was, in fact, probable cause. Both, Your Honor. Your Honor, because as an example, Your Honor, if you, if a trial court, for example, let's say, is handling a criminal case. And the issue is whether or not probable cause existed to charge or arrest or do something in that criminal case. And that trial judge determines that there was. And that case comes all the way up here. And this court decides that that judge was wrong. And there was not evidence to support probable cause and sends it back. Surely that cannot be an inference of malice by the trial judge. That's simply error, an error. And what we're talking about here for an officer who, in that moment, in deciding whether or not he needs to charge an offense, has made the right decision. It's either he was right or he was wrong on the facts. So your argument about probable cause goes 
goes to the merits of the malicious prosecution claim rather than to public official immunity? Once we get to the merits of the claim, that's right, Your Honor. Well, I mean, are we arguing over probable cause because you contend that you were entitled to summary judgment with respect to the uh, malicious prosecution claim due to an absence of any showing of a lack of probable cause? No, Your Honor. We're arguing about probable cause because the plaintiff raised it in his brief. Um, we, we do not believe probable cause is, is the question here. The issue here you, you, is I mean, your, your view then is that probable cause is totally irrelevant to what's before us today? It is, not, it is not the test for malice. If the court used the lack of probable cause to be a proxy for malice, I believe that would be the first time that that's happened in one of these cases. Um, but are, are, are you saying that the lack of probable cause could never be relevant to a question whether there was malice? Your Honor, um, I cannot think of a good example of where it was. I would be, I suppose, if there were just literally no facts known to an officer that would justify a finding of problem. I mean, no facts. Thus, it's not even a discretionary judgment call. There's just nothing to base probable cause on, maybe, in the case like that. Um, but, it, it, but it, again, it has not been the test for whether or not you can pierce immunity in this state, uh, is whether or not it... It, these decisions on whether or not probable cause exists uh, are, are the decisions that immunity is intended to protect. They're judgment calls. They're making them on the spot, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a clerk, whether <coughs> it is anybody holding a public office. If they're making a judgment call based on the facts that are known to them, immunity protects that. And if they're, just, if they're wrong, they're just wrong. Uh, and it's, it does not pierce the immunity. Would, if, would you agree that... Um, even if there is probable cause that it is relevant to malice, whether he used excessive or unnecessary force? Um, Your Honor, I don't think it is in this case. It's not relevant at all? It, in this case, he was detained. And that the, 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 the detention, the handcuffs in this case, um, do not require a showing. That's, the reason I say that is because that doesn't require a showing of probable cause, Your Honor. Uh, the, the undisputed facts in this case are that the individual, the plaintiff, was behaving in a way that he himself admits in his own testimony would be alarming to any police officer and would create a perception of risk to that officer. There is a usage of the term body slam, and that's an aspect of this case that uh, compels me to ask you in terms of the synthesis of the concept of probable cause with excessive force as raised by Justice Hudson, how do we analyze that very broad term body slam in terms of what that may conjure up for someone uh, in terms of looking at whether or not there was malice, arguably, and whether or not that would uh, compromise the ability of your client to utilize the public official defense? Thank you, Your Honor. I'm happy to respond to that. Um, and I think what you said there, what it conjures up, that image, is the problem with relying on that word in this case. Well, and, there, and before you answer just, <clears throat> Justice Morgan's question did, in, the, in the deposition, excuse me, <clears throat> did the <clears throat> plaintiff testify that he was, quote, unquote, body slammed? Is that in the record? That is his word. Okay. The, and, and that word is really essentially his evidence of malice. In this but but he, t he testified that he was body slammed. He pled that in his complaint, and I believe he said it in his deposition, Your Honor. Uh, he said, I was slammed onto my car. Well, it's it, summary judgment. We'd worry about what he said in the deposition, yeah. wouldn't we? He said, he did say he was body slammed. Okay, now, thank you, and I apologize to Justice Morgan for interrupting. Yeah. Your Honor, um, the problem with using that word, it was, it's kind of layered in this case. But that word does have a connotation, and I'm sure that he chose that word because he wanted to use that connotation. It, it, it connotes something that is unnecessarily violent, right? But we, and that might get somebody past a pleading stage, a Rule 12 motion, if they were trying to get past governmental, or excuse me, public official immunity. Um, but we were at summary judgment, and we had the ability to take his deposition and to ask him questions about exactly what happened and what he means by that word. And that is what is important, not that label, that characterization that he puts on it. I mean, he could have said, you know, anybody who is handcuffed could say, well, the police officer beat me up. And if you ask them what he means by that, and was simply putting their hands behind their back and putting them in a patrol car, that's not beating up. So 
the word has to match the facts. But for the sake of analysis, why should we not view the usage of the term body slam in terms of looking at the aspect of malice uh, with this broader view as to whether or not there is enough here that has been shown or at the very least raised uh, for the purpose of looking at whether or not uh, this matter should go forward from the plaintiff against your client in terms of the penetration of the public official immunity? Quite simply, Your Honor, his testimony nullified that word. You have to look at what actually happened. And that, again, is a characterization. He could say he beat me up. He could say any number of labels that he wants to put on what happened. But the court needs to pay attention to the testimony that the plaintiff gave under oath about what actually happened, the actual facts. When you're and those facts were not a body slam. I'm sorry. I, no, I, just, I just want to clarify something. When you say that he nullified his own words, aren't you basically saying that the court should weigh that and discount some of the evidence? And isn't that a function for the jury? It is not, Your Honor. It is because we, this is an, I'm looking at this, and I think the court should look at this as an undisputed factual record. And he can, suppose he wants to call what he described in his deposition a body slam. If he wants to call it that, let him call it that. But the court needs to look at his testimony as to what that word means to him. And what that word means to him in his deposition is essentially a normal way of putting handcuffs on somebody who has been resisting police instructions. Because if you look at his testimony, Your Honor, he said, first of all, that I, I don't know how I got on the back of my car. I just know that I ended up on the back of my car. And when he was further questioned and continued to deny how he got there, he did eventually say that I know that the officer had my hand in his hand on my left side, and he put a hand on my back. And then he put me on the trunk of my car. That is in no way the body slam that has any connotation of excessive force. That is just applying handcuffs in a way that was necessary and I think justified given the facts of this case. So that is what actually happened. He was not picked up. He admits that the officer made no bodily contact with him aside from his hand during this handcuffing. And that he bent at the waist. His feet didn't come off the ground. Nothing excessively forceful happened to this man by his own testimony. Well, he didn't use the word excessive that I saw in his deposition. He did not. But in his testimony, in the deposition, he said his, he didn't see what the officer did because his back was turned. And then when asked how he ended up on the deck lid of his vehicle, he said, by his force, meaning the officer's force. Correct. And I asked him what that meant, Your Honor, and that's what I just described is what he meant, being pushed over the deck of his car by this police officer with one hand. And he says, tell me his actions. What did he do? I don't know. My back was turned. All of a sudden, I'm on the deck of my vehicle. Your Honor, uh, that is an absence of proof by him. If he doesn't know how he got there, but he does know how he got there. Well, he doesn't by the force of the officer and when his back was turned, suddenly he's on the, on the deck of his vehicle. Isn't that that Isn't is that right. a reasonable inference from what he said? Not when you read his entire testimony, Your Honor, because he said that first, and then I kept inquiring of him what happened. And then he said, one hand, one hand over the deck. That is just one hand over the deck. That is not the officer running at him, tackling him, throwing him on the deck of this car. Well, if he says one thing and then he says something different later in his deposition, at this stage, don't we take it in the light most favorable to him in terms of whether he's met that burden? Not on those facts, not on that testimony, Your Honor, because he's saying on the one hand, I don't know. Essentially, I'm not giving you the answer. I don't know. But then when he's asked more questions, nothing about that is inconsistent. He's just expanding on how he got on the car. I mean, it is not, it's not a dispute. And he can't certainly No, how is that it. taking it in the light most favorable to, to him? Because it is, those are the facts, Your Honor. I mean, those are, those are the simple facts. That he, that's the only description he gave of how he ended up on the car. And those are just, those, are, those facts are taken as they are. Uh, and you can't put a, an inference on those that, don't, that does not exist for the benefit of sending this officer to trial and piercing public official immunity, especially when he has what this court has labeled a very high burden 
of substantial proof of malice. Well, just to follow up on that, when he was asked in deposition, when Officer Blackman approached you in the driveway, do you recall him reaching out to grab one of your wrists? And the answer was, after he slammed me against the back of the trunk lid, yes. Why, why isn't that a description of what he experienced? Um, I can only give the same answer, Your Honor, as I continue to ask him about how he ended up on the back of the car. That, that's the testimony that he gave. It was with one hand on his center of his backer. Presumably the center. He couldn't tell me if it was the left or the right. Counsel, did you mean to retain any time for rebuttal? Your Honor, if I may, I would like to retain a few minutes for rebuttal. Well, it's up to you. You've got four minutes and 35 seconds left. I will have just one more comment, if I may, is that regardless of how this event was described, uh, it, it, it does describe a handcuffing of somebody who was recalcitrant. And I would say it was in the light most favorable to the plaintiff taking that event because that's, those are his words. That's his event. That was not malicious. There was no injury to him. He admits that he was not injured. He admits that he, he does not say he suffered any pain. The only discomfort he alleged was related to the handcuffs, which the officer was permitted to put on him under these facts. So intent to injure is a component of malice. And there is, I would say, a complete absence of proof of an intent to injure uh, in this case, regardless of how you perceive or use his word body slam in the case. And, Your Honor, I would like at this time to reserve uh, three minutes and 40 seconds for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. My name is Seth Cohen from the Greensboro Bar. I'm Mr. Bartley's attorney. The first thing I want to say is I couldn't disagree more about the probable cause. Probable cause is the key to this entire case because the test for malice from your case in Grodd v. Costa in 1984 is whether the act was unwantonly, that's needless, needlessly, reckless indifference to the rights of others, contrary to duty, and intent to be prejudicial or injurious, actual or constructive. Probable cause is an objective standard. It is not what's in Officer Blackman's mind. It's what a reasonable police officer would do. And since we're at summary judgment, it has to be in the light most favorable to the non-moving party. So, so, so let, me, let me try to put it and see, if, tell me if you think I've got it right. All right. With respect to probable cause, the issue is, generally speaking, what a reasonable officer would have believed at the time. Yes, sir. The question here is, what does the evidence taken in the light most favorable to the plaintiff tend to show that a reasonable officer would have believed at the time? You've taken the words right out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say. Okay. And, and so let me go on to the, back to what you just said, because I'm, you know, I mean, my experience has been that if I understand what I'm asked to decide, I've got a better chance of deciding it correctly or at least not deciding the wrong thing. Your contention is that an absence of probable cause is a basis for finding uh, the malice necessary to pierce the uh, doctrine of official immunity? Yes, sir. Can you cite me a case that holds that? <clears throat> I don't have a case where the court has said absence of probable cause equals malice in the context of public official immunity. What I'm saying is... Of course, the absence of malice, I mean, the absence of probable cause is an element of at least one of the claims that you have asserted in this case. Yeah. Uh, if the absence of probable cause is a basis for penetrating public official immunity, does that not collapse the immunity issue into the liability issue? I don't believe so, Your Honor. And actually, all right. why, why not? Well, because I'm, I'm, that's that's all right. one of the reasons for my possible confusion. All right. Well, the absence of probable cause would go to both the false arrest and the malicious prosecution right. on the merits. But as far as the malice, if he didn't have probable cause to arrest him because, and we can get the facts in a minute, that he was behind his door uh, when he told him to get back in the car. If he didn't have probable cause, then from that, you could show reckless indifference to the rights of others. You could show he was acting contrary to his duty because he did not have a right to arrest him. He did not have a right 
to charge him and that he was intending to be prejudicial or injurious. But so all I'm saying is the lack of probable cause is not in and of itself malice. It is an indication of malice is defined in this context. But at least at this point, if we were to hold in accordance with your argument, you can't cite me anything that says we wouldn't be the first court to do that? No, because I'm not asking, well, maybe I misspoke. I'm not asking you to hold that in all cases, absence of probable cause equals malice for the purpose of law. Okay, then tell me what you are asking us to hold in case so that I'll make sure I understand. I'm asking you to hold in this case that we have met the test because for showing malice. Because? Because of the facts of this case, which I can get into, but because it was wanton, contrary to duty, and intended to be prejudicial or injurious. His actions met those three standards. That's the test from Grodd. Right. Help, help me understand then one more time, and I'll let you get on after that. Right. Uh, tell me one more time why an absence of probable cause tends to show malice in your view. It tends to show malice in this case because he did not have probable cause to believe this man was doing anything other than walking behind his car to get his sick cat Sheba from the front seat of the car. That's what he was doing. And the officer, that's all he saw. He was in plain clothes. He was in an unmarked vehicle. He said, get back in the car. Mr. Bartley, in the light most favorable to him, did not know he was a police officer. He never said he was a police officer. Well, does it, or, and I guess that's the question. Does it, what is the operative point whether Mr. Bartley knew he was a police officer or whether the officer reasonably believed that Mr. Bartley knew he was a police officer? It's what a reasonable police officer would believe given the facts in the light most favorable okay. to the plaintiff. Okay. So I'll go over the facts. But just so we're perfectly clear, I'm not saying the court should hold in all cases of public official okay. immunity. If there's not probable cause, you win. Okay. The test is grud. That's been since 1984, and I think everyone agrees that's the test. All I'm saying is on the facts of this particular case, the, lacks of, the lack of probable cause tends to lead one down that road to meet the test. That's what I'm asking. Okay. So I'm asking you to any, make any holding that's different than uh, you know, for the test purposes. If, um, if your client had pled guilty to all the charges that were uh, uh, made against him, would that establish probable cause? If he had pled guilty, it would affect the malicious prosecution case because it wouldn't have come out in his favor. That would be the merits of the malicious prosecution case. It wouldn't affect the analysis for public official immunity, I don't believe. It would affect the merits of the malicious prosecution case. And he did not plead. He well, if this, if this case is all about probable cause, uh, wouldn't pleading guilty admit that probable cause existed? Well, he, he, well, first of all, he didn't plead guilty. Had he pled guilty to resist, delay, and obstruct and said, yes, I did it, then that would tend to show there was probable cause for his arrest, yes. But he didn't plead guilty. So what did he do here? What did he do? In response to the charges. He hired an attorney, Ames Chamberlain, who's a good defense attorney, and Ames worked a deal with the DA, which happens every day, which I've done on many, many, many times. And in return for going to a class, they dismissed the charge. Um, did he do community service as well? Community service. That, that's a standard deal in Guilford County. So, so why isn't that tantamount to at least an Alford plea? Because he did, and when, if we get to trial, he's going to say he did what his attorney told him to do. Mr. Chamberlain's a good attorney, and he said, I've got this deal, and he said, I'll take it. Um, you know, what, what he said was, what does that mean? He says, well, if you do these things, the charges will be dismissed. He wanted the charges dismissed, so he did those things. He has always contended he didn't do anything wrong. And that wouldn't go to the excessive force claim, by the way, but it would 
had he pled guilty, then one could say at least for sure the malicious prosecution case would come out differently. And they, they are going to argue that on the underlying merits that what you're talking about does affect the malicious prosecution case, whether it came out in his favor. They've there, got that argument for the merits. There, there are cases, are there not? I know the Federal Circuit case and others as well that have uh, found that when someone enters a, a pretrial diversion type program, which is what occurred here, that that is tantamount to um, admitting that there was uh, uh, probable cause for these charges, uh, recognizing that that deprives the officer of the day in court in the criminal case uh, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that all these things occurred. Um, why shouldn't we adopt that approach? That approach goes to the underlying merits, and there are cases on the malicious prosecution, that so we have three claims, on the malicious prosecution, that if you plead, if you take a deal like that, that that undercuts the dismissal in your favor aspect. There's a couple of cases from this court early on in the 30s and 40s that talk about that that weren't discussed in the briefs because this court denied discretionary review as to the merits. So all those, because they asked for that and this court denied it. And so those issues were not uh, fleshed out in the brief. But they, th those things are relevant to probable cause. It's, it's relevant to probable cause if he pled guilty, but he didn't plead guilty. If, if, if his testimony at trial is, I did what my attorney told me to do, I didn't do anything wrong, you know, I didn't resist arrest, my attorney said, I should do this and I can get the charges dismissed because you never know what a district court judge is going to do. You never know if you appeal to Superior Court what a jury is going to do. If you want your record expunged, it's my experience that I recommend to you to take the plea. It's not even a plea, I, I misspoke, to take this deal where you do the community service and they dismiss it. So if that's his testimony, that's not the same thing as him admitting that there was probable cause. There, there's no dispute that he passed uh, a truck over double yellow lines. There's no dispute on that. And there's no dispute that the officer observed that. Yes, sir. And there's no dispute that the officer ultimately passed the truck, I guess turned on its lights, truck pulled over, and followed uh, the plaintiff to his home. That's correct. Uh, Did the police officer have the right, based on having observed that, to then uh, encounter uh, the plaintiff? He did, and had he stopped him in the middle of the road, and you know, in a normal traffic stop situation, you've got a, a guy in the police car in his police uniform, and if he sees that, he pulls him over, and everybody knows he's a police officer. And if he'd have gotten out of his car, a police officer sometimes says, get back in your car. That's not what happened here. The facts here, Your Honor, and that's why it's important what some of the justices were questioning about and what Mr. Woodard talked about um, that he saw him in the driveway. Your Honor, he testified on page 50, 48 of his deposition that um, the question was, was he Officer Blackman outside of his car when he said that, the answer was he was with the door open, standing behind the door. So, so if, if you had just gotten home and some random person right. pulled up and said, get back in your car, why would you not say, get off my property, this is my property, I'm going to call the police? I mean, why, why would you say, why would you respond as if, a police officer, I, 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 I don't, it's hard for me to look at the, the facts and say, oh yeah, it's clear that the plaintiff here did not know this was a police officer who had observed something. Uh, Your Honor, I think that is basically what he said. He said, 
I guess you have to know Mr. Bartley. To me, it makes perfectly good sense I know Mr. Bartley. He said, no, I'm on private property. I think that is what he's saying. You might have said it differently. You might have said, what are you talking about? I'm at home. Go away. Who do you think you are? His response was, no, I'm on private property. Well, that to me reacts as if someone has authority. No, I'm on private property instead of, who are you? Leave me alone. I'm going to call the police. Well, again, Your Honor, you might have said that. Someone else might have said that. I think that's what Mr. Bartley was saying in his own way. He was saying, who do you think you are? I'm on private property. I'm, on, I'm in my own driveway. I'm at my house. I'm not getting back into my car. Because he says over and over, I did not know he's a police officer. So again, at this stage, and what you're saying, obviously, if we're trying the case, and I am the city's lawyer, I might say just what you said. I might argue that to the jury. It's a pretty good jury argument. But that's not where we're at. We're at qualified, we're at public official immunity stage. And we're also at summary judgment stage. And it's the light most favorable to Mr. Bartley as to what a reasonable police officer, not Officer Blackman, knows. So if we put those two together, light most favorable to plaintiff, what a reasonable police officer would know, here's what a reasonable police officer would know, in the light most favorable to Mr. Bartley, he would know <coughs> from page 57 how long did you look at Mr. Bartley? Seconds. Was he moving when you saw him for those seconds? No. Was he standing beside his car? He was behind the door the last I had seen him. Okay? Well, wait, hold on. Let me make sure again that I got my facts straight because we've all said this is a fact specific <coughs> case. So let me right. make sure I've got it. At some point, there's no question but that the officer advanced toward your client. Right. Uh, he came out from behind the door, even on your client's testimony, and advanced toward Mr. Bartley. Yes. Uh, is there any evidence that a siren was not activated at some point? Officer Bartley says he turned the siren off is when there, he got yeah. to the house. But, but I, I, that, that's why I said at some point, at least during the time that Officer Bartley, after he initiated the pursuit until he got to the driveway. He says he turned it on. Mr. Bartley says he didn't hear it. Okay. Mr. Bartley testified he did not hear the siren. He testified he did not see the light. What he testified was when he got to his house, he got out of his car, like he gets out of the car here, and this is his car. He testifies he's going around the back of his car. His back is to the officer. The officer is in plain clothes. He sees a guy, he says, standing behind his door. So he had opened the door, and he's behind his door. He testified to that twice. So he didn't see the badge at that point. Your, your, your colleagues stayed in their briefs, if I understood it correctly, that uh, your client testified that while he did not hear a siren or see blue lights that he did not deny that uh, the siren had been activated and that the blue lights were flashing. Is that a correct? About the blue lights, I think he said, I didn't see them. He said, well, can you say they weren't on? He said, no, I can't say they were okay. on. I can't say they were off. So, so, so that's, that's your recollection of that part of the record? Yes. Okay. He was saying, I don't know. I, he was saying, I didn't see them. I think the answer to the question was, can I say for a fact that they weren't on? He said, no. I didn't see him. He's saying, he said over and over, I didn't know he was a police officer. He didn't see the lights. That the first time he knew he was a police officer is when he saw a belt, when he saw the, um, you know, the, the badge on the belt after he was on the car. What he's saying is he, he turned his back. Someone says, get back in the car. It's undisputed. The police officer didn't say, Officer Blackman didn't say he's a police officer. So, to me, talking about kind of common sense things like Chief Justice Newby, you were saying what you just said. Why not? There are four words. There are four words Officer Blackman could have said. And had he said them, I wouldn't be standing here. Mr. Witter wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't be hearing this. I'm a police officer. Now, what would a reasonable police officer do? He gets out of his car, and he says to someone, 
It's a 60 year old guy. He's in the middle, upper middle class neighborhood. It's a brick house. He's getting out of his car. He doesn't seem to be paying a lot of attention because Sheba's in the front seat. Sheba's sick. He's come home from the vet. He's going to get him. The police officer says, get back in the car. And the person says, no, I'm on private property. What would a reasonable police officer say? I'm a police officer. I saw you pass on a yellow line. Get back in the car. Do you know what Mr. Bartley said he would have done had he heard those four words? He said, I'll get back in the car. Is it arguable, though, that the officer may have felt as though there's no need to verbalize what is otherwise apparent in terms of my presentation of a badge on my belt with a radio in my hand and my blue lights flashing? He testified, I didn't have a chance to say it. And I said, well, you could have if you wanted to, couldn't you? And he said, I didn't have a chance. And I pressed him again and I said, are you telling me you couldn't utter the word, something like that? And he said, no, I could have said it. But he said he didn't uh, have the opportunity to do it. I don't really understand that. Uh, maybe you're right, maybe. I guess he could say, I thought he knew I was a police officer, but again, at this stage, we're looking at this in the light most favorable to Mr. Bartley. And the light most favorable to, to him, he said it twice, not once but twice, that the officer was behind, when he got out, was behind the door. He did not see the badge. He did not see the gun. He did not see the radio. The guy was in plain clothes. He was in an unmarked car. And speaking of that standard, for our analysis, as a court, how do we balance what you just said, which is looking at this summary judgment stage at the evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiff right. versus the presumption for public officer or public official immunity purposes that there's a presumption that an officer operates good faith. with good faith and does so lawfully? Right. There, the presumption comes from a case, uh, the ones cited in the briefs, case called Leap versus County of Warren, and there are several things about that. First, the beginning clause of that statement is absent evidence to the contrary comma, there's this presumption with the heavy burden. Here, there is evidence to the contrary, so I don't believe the presumption <coughs> applies. If the presumption does apply, it just means you have to come forward with a lot of evidence. We've come forward, all these facts I've said in the light most favorable to him, which it still would be the light most favorable to the non-moving party, to defeat the presumption. But there's something real interesting about Leet in this court because Leet is a severance pay case of a county manager for the county of Warren. And what this court was saying, and I um, forget, of the year uh, 1995 was that there's a presumption that the Board of Commissioners acted appropriately in giving him a severance pay and the issue was Article 132, the Emoluments Clause. If you track the leap back, this court, at this court, every time that I found that has used this presumption, it's been a body. It's <coughs> been a county commissioner, a Board of Education, or a city council, whether it's Lee, Painter, Huntley, or Kirby, all the way back to 1948. This court has always used that as a public body. And if you look at the public policy behind that, it makes sense that commissioners are acting. They are going to give them a, a big are, are, are you asking us to hold that this immunity doesn't apply to uh, individual? Uh, I'm not asking you. That's not being presented. I'm just I'm throwing Because I guess my question is, Assuming, I mean, I haven't read all the cases back like right. you have, but assuming that, where, what do we do with it? I just found it interesting that the Court of Appeals has taken something that this court has used in context over here and applied it to individual officials, and I'm not sure that the policy matches up. But that issue is not directly before you. I'm just throwing that out there because I found it intellectually, <laughs> just kind of found it interesting. But... Assuming there is a, a presumption, we have come forward with lots and lots of facts to show that it's defeated. And again, 
when you look at Lee, it says absence evidence to the contrary, which makes sense when you're talking about a board of, of commissioners, like the Warren commissioners, absence. That case you had the other day, Monday, the, um, the fire service case with the legislative immunity, you know, you have, uh, you're assuming these people acted right in a good manner. The uh, uh, commissioners or uh, city council or board of education. That's what your cases talk about. Now, I have to say the Court of Appeals has applied it to individual officers. It doesn't seem to me to fit the paradigm. It doesn't seem to me to fit the public policy. But even if you use it, it starts out absent evidence to the contrary. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary here. How do you respond to the other side's uh, contention that the only evidence that's been substantively shown is the characterization of the physical maneuver by the officer against your client uh, as a body slam? He said body slam, I think, two times and slam once and by force once. What Mr. Bartley was saying if we were sitting there watching his deposition is my back was turned. I don't know how I got on the trunk. All I knew is I was thrown onto the trunk. He did not say, he really did not say, well, he took his hand and he put me like this. He didn't say that. He said, how do I know how I got on the trunk? My back was to him. All I know is I'm walking around the back of my car, and the next thing I know, I'm on the trunk of my car. Does that mean we can discount the body slam aspect in terms of what you say has been uh, shown as uh, a rebuttal of the presumption? I'm not following you. I think he was. He says he was body slam, meaning he, I, I'll agree with this. If he didn't say, and I don't think he means, that the officer picked him up in the air like an MMA guy and threw him down on the, he's not saying that. He's saying he was slammed into the trunk. He was thrown into the trunk by force. He was moved into the trunk, which would be excessive force for common law assault. And ass assuming for purposes of discussion, we were to accept your argument of excessive force, where does that get us for public official immunity in your view? Well, if it's excessive force, Your Honor, then it's in reckless dis uh, indifference to the rights of Mr. Bartley. It's contrary to his duty because he didn't have a duty to throw him against the car. And it's intended to be prejudicial or injurious. So it would defeat public official immunity. The for, for all claims? For Yes, I, yes, sir. Okay. Yes. Let me ask you a real quick question about that language, the by force. As I understood your opposing counsel, and he'll correct me if I misunderstood this, I'm sure, um, He's, he says that the off, that the Mr. Bartley in his testimony basically took that back, kind of nullified those words by force later in his testimony. What, I, what I was there and I didn't hear it. What I heard was Mr. Woodard. He's a good cross examination. He's and what I heard him and he's cherry picked from the deposition that he was talking about. Well, did he put his hand on your back? Yes. Did you end up on the trunk? Yes. And he's, from that, he's saying, he's saying that he didn't mean what he said. It's, uh, it's kind of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, he says I'm slammed. He says it's by force. He said I'm body slammed three different times. But he couldn't have meant it because I asked him this, and he said he ended up that I put my hand on his back. Mr. Bartley, over and over, when you read it, says exactly what he says. I ended up by force. I was slammed against the car. I don't know how it got there except that he threw me against the car. And there's no need for that. There's, the handcuffs in this case is excessive force. Because if there's not probable cause for the arrest for RDO, you can't arrest for the passing on the yellow line because it's an infraction. So you can't, you know, the statute, you can't, can't arrest for that. So he would have to arrest for the RDO. Your Honors, I've got two and a half minutes, and I wanted to ask you if you're interested in what I put in a memo of additional authority about the split among the panels of the Court of Appeals, because I do think that's important to the jurisprudence of the state, about whether intentional torts are even covered by public official immunity. If you're interested in that, I could, I could spend a, a minute on that, because... There is a split. Um, there are five panels that have said 
that intentional torts in and of themselves defeat public official immunity. Well, isn't, isn't that contrary to the holdings of this court in Munich and uh, was Albiot? I don't think this court has ever specifically said, maybe I missed it, but I, I haven't found a case where this court specifically said that an intentional tort um, that the public official immunity applied to an intentional tort. The cases I've seen where this court discussed public official immunity were negligence, happened to be negligence cases. This court didn't say the other way. And I, I could be getting the case wrong, but I, I think it's Albion, Albioc, uh, that this court PC affirmed from the Court of Appeals in the early 80s. This court might have PC affirmed that case. I'm not familiar if, if that case held that. Well, let me back up. This court, the Court of Appeals has on several occasions used public official immunity and for intentional torts. The question is, there are five panels that have said you can't use it. So there is a split. But if, if this court has said that uh, there is immunity for intentional torts, then the then split at the Court of Appeals is irrelevant. It, it would be irrelevant, yes, sir. I haven't seen this court just affirmatively say it. And I think if you look at the public policy behind public official immunity, it doesn't seem to fit uh, using it for intentional torts. But again, I see my time is running out. Um, if the court doesn't have any further questions, um, we would ask you to affirm what both Judge Morgan did at the trial court and what Judge Arrowwood and Deets did at the Court of Appeals and just let us go to trial in this case. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, I realize I have a short time here. Uh, let me comment very briefly on applying the handcuffs and not needing probable cause for that. He was detained. The plaintiff says he was detained. He does not need probable cause to put handcuffs on somebody for safety reasons at a traffic stop. The law from this court is clear on that. Uh, what Officer Blackman said about why he didn't identify himself as a police officer is perfectly sensible. I didn't think that when I pulled up in his driveway with my blue lights flashing and my gun visible and my badge visible and my radio visible and all this other indicia of police officer that I just say I'm a police officer was going to make one bit of difference, and I think that's a reasonable conclusion for him to make. Did the officer pull into the driveway or just at the end of the, the end driveway? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, and I also want to point out and, and do we look at this from the standpoint of a reasonable officer? Should we consider that the officer saw what he thought were evasive actions by the plaintiff in terms of turning to the subdivision, that type of thing? Your Honor, that is part of it, certainly. Uh, it did occur, and I believe Officer Bachman said it did begin to occur to him that he was trying to evade him. And he said that pulling into a driveway is certainly an indicia of somebody trying to invade, uh, evade a police officer because he has seen that used before. Um, and, and, and then just going to the events that happened in the driveway, uh, the, he was admittedly trying to get into the backseat of a car, and the plaintiff admits and concedes that the things that he did creates a risk situation for a police officer. And I failed to mention in the beginning, when they applied the handcuffs to him, he tried to resist briefly getting the handcuffs on his left hand, and the plaintiff doesn't dispute that. Um, finally, on the, uh, I want to talk briefly about the intentional tort question. Uh, I just briefly want to say that that issue is not properly before the court. Uh, this appeal is here on a dissent. That wasn't addressed in the dissent. It should be barred by Rule 16b. Um, that would be, uh, that, that issue hasn't been briefed, it wasn't argued, uh, and it wouldn't be appropriate for the court to consider that here, and that would be a, an extreme departure from the law now, as I understand it, because this court has applied uh, public official immunity, at least at the Rule 12 setting, in cases that have involved actual or at least arguable intentional torts, which like in State v. Smith, which was an employment termination, which is an intent uh, action, uh, and it applied it in a, um, I believe this was in grad, uh, to a uh, wrongful autopsy, which can't be negligent. That was an intent to perform an autopsy. Uh, so that was an intentional setting. And if you just look at the way this court has described the test, it says that public officials can't be held liable personally for negligence, period, full stop. To get to the official, you have to show malice, corruption, 
and these sorts of things that are conscious, decisive things that you have done on purpose with intent. And, and frankly, just practically, there would be numerous ways that a plaintiff could rephrase a negligence action as an intentional tort uh, and plead it as such. And that would just be getting around uh, public official immunity with uh, artful pleading. And I'm sure that's not what the court's intention is. But that issue is not before the court and should not be decided by this court in this case. If that issue was going to be raised with this court, it should be fully briefed and argued. Um, and, Your Honor, I believe that is all I have, and that is certainly all of my time. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Mr. Clark.